live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back. Last two weeks, we went a bit off our beaten track of the classic history series that we've been doing till now, and it was very much appreciated. First of all, for myself, I found it incredible, but also from the amount, the sheer amount of feedback we've been getting. Uh, people have written that it should be required listening in schools. So we'll see if we can uh, incorporate that into the national curriculum. Right. So you said last week we're going to be doing a four-part series, and this one is related to the Holocaust, as it's coming up to the three weeks now. Yes. And this week I want to share an incredible story of a girl just out of her late teens who saw the violent destruction of her own community and was determined to change the narrative even though she was obviously an individual fighting against an army. She joined the resistance movement in Belgium and with courage, with chutzpah, with nerves of steel, became part of a system that was aimed at sabotaging the efforts of the Gestapo and saving Jewish, non-Jewish lives, slowing down, I guess you could put it, the, the machine of death. And these stories bring to light the accomplishments of a very brave young woman who risked her life every day for two years. And we will try and cover the most unusual events. Her name was Helen Moskowitz. And it all started very ordinarily in 1937 when she was a 17-year-old girl living with a family in Brussels. She'd left school a year earlier. She loved to read. She was Jewish, but had very blonde hair and spoke fluent German as her parents had emigrated from there a number of years earlier. And one day she's in the public library and she met François Vermolen, a lieutenant in the Belgian army, who was actually to play a major role in her wartime activities um, she ha she was rummaging through a row of books and managed to drop a whole armload with an enormous amount of noise. And she was very embarrassed and she was very relieved when he came to her rescue and helped her clear up the mess. He spoke fluent English, fluent German, as well as uh, French and Flemish. And they found that they had a common interest in literature. Vermolen mentioned that he'd spent three years in a German university because his father, who was a colonel in the Belgian army, sent him there to study medicine. And the two of them saw each other quite often after that. And it went on to become one of what I could only call the most unusual friendships of World War II. However, in the summer of 1939, he disappeared without a trace and obviously in May 1940, the German army marched into Brussels, which would change Helene's life forever. And then one day in the autumn of 1940, she had the shock of her life. She saw François Vermolen in a German army uniform sitting at a cafe. 
He looked up, he saw her, and a minute or two later came running after her. He confided in her that he was really still a loyal Belgian army officer trying to pass for a German, that British intelligence had provided him with a German passport with German identity papers and a cover story and packed him off to Germany just before the war started and his orders were to join the armed forces there until further notice. France, as he was now known, was in contact with Belgian resistance and was aware that they were looking for a German-speaking girl. And he knew that, you know, she was very self-assured and felt that she could be uh, an asset to them. Now, it took quite a bit of persuasion, but eventually she agreed to assume a false identity. He gave her false papers and so began her double life a Jew working for the resistance movement, pretending to be a German, which sounds simple, uh, but there was obviously the ongoing fear of discovery by the Nazis. Or even just being recognized by a non-Jewish neighbor. Yes, exactly. Ever present. Her first mission was a simple one. She was to get permission to sell German newspapers in the military headquarters in Brussels and report whatever she heard there. One month in, she was told to focus on one individual, counterintelligence officer Hugo Stahler. So she stops by frequently to converse with him, and he's flattered to be the focus of attention of a pretty girl. And one day, she sees loads of activity happening around him or around his office, and she asked him if there was something important happening. So he boasts to her that if all goes to plan, he's going to be in line for a promotion. She prompts him a little bit further, and he explained that he had discovered a network of four British agents on the Chaussée de Vavre, whom he planned to arrest the next evening. She brings this information immediately to France, who did not have a precise address, just a street. He starts knocking systematically on each door. In one house, a girl answers, who doesn't appear to be Belgian, and France, France casts a quick glance inside and sees more girls there. He gets into conversation and manages to sort of convince them that they are in danger, and within a short while he arranged for a Red Cross truck to pick them up, and she learnt eventually that three days later they were taken via the Ardennes forest and returned safely to England. And Helene never heard from Hugo Stahler after that, and assumes that the resistance took care of him uh, quite permanently. She is then given weapons training, she learned to fire a rifle, a revolver, a submachine gun, and how to load and unload. And uh, Jean, the leader of the unit, also showed her how to throw a hand grenade and gave her a pistol, not for combat, but in case she was ever captured. France then came up with another request to help him infiltrate into Gestapo headquarters on Avenue Louise which would require her to act the part of a confident German. He explained that the head of the Gestapo, a guy called Müller, and his assistant, Schwenker, 
had a morning break every day at the Café Louise and always sat in the same corner. And she was to sit at a table as near to those offices as possible. And, you know, it might take a week or two, but eventually they would see her and start a conversation. She was to introduce herself as Olga Richter and mention at a convenient opportunity that her fiancé, Franz Bochler, worked at the Todd and wasn't very happy there, and mention his knowledge of languages, which should, on, in theory at least, interest them. And she does so. She manages to engage in the conversation, at the end of which Müller told her to tell her friend to come and see him. The way he put it was, our section pays well, and there are all sorts of privileges. If he speaks French, his place could be with us. And he asked for Franz's full name, he wrote it down, he signed a piece of paper and said, this is his pass. My office is on the eighth floor. If he is, as you say, we will take him. So she actually got him into the Gestapo itself. Yes. But she didn't have sort of long to celebrate her success before France suggested the next and far more audacious and dangerous step. Because he spoke French, he'd been assigned an office all to himself at the Gestapo headquarters, and he was put in charge of translating documents regarding arrests and arrest warrants. And he realises, you know, how incredibly important this is and how many lives could potentially be saved but he's working on his own which is a severe handicap so he pleads with her to join him at the gestapo officers as his secretary and it's almost indescribable the fear she had when she stepped into the gestapo building until that moment, she hadn't really appreciated what it meant to be a Belgian Jewish girl in the role of a sort of a German Fraulein. But now she walks in, she, she is now flanked by Obersturmbahnführer Müller, a colonel who's in charge of the Brussels Gestapo. And she's walking with him past guard after guard through these long hallways greeted by rapid-fire Heil Hitler salutes and clicking heels. But she now, too, had penetrated the Gestapo. She was now working for Lieutenant Bochler, who's actually a British agent. But obviously, henceforth, fear would be a constant companion every day for two long years because she knew if she's caught a quick death would be the last thing given to her because she would know the names of other resistance members and the cellar at the gestapo was a torture chamber and while she was walking through the downstairs halls towards the elevator she would often hear agonizing screams from below wow what was happening to her family at this time were they alive Yes, by 1942, they realised the implications of wearing the Star of David, the yellow star, and they gave up wearing it. But they were quite well known in their own neighbourhood, and there was a danger of being arrested, which grew with each passing day. Eventually, they agreed to hand over their tailoring business to a non-Jewish partner called Oscar Estournier, who moved into the building with his wife to run the business for officially half the profits and agreed to allow her parents to keep a low profile and continue living in the building. 
Helene was obviously constantly concerned for their safety because she was aware of what was happening to the Jews of Brussels. But her parents did not, and in fact could not know about her double identity because she couldn't endanger them. And therefore, when she suggested that they try and flee to Switzerland, her father rejected the suggestion because it was, you know, coming from a little girl, basically, not somebody who was in the Gestapo office. And she always felt torn that she's helping others and not able to concentrate on her own family. And eventually, Monday, December the 7th, 1942, a date that she would never forget, because in the morning, France had driven her to his apartment, where she was given an attaché case, inside of which were four revolvers and two boxes of ammunition that had been stolen from the Germans and were now destined for the use of the resistance. She was to store them and she went home and put them in the bottom of her cupboard in her flat and returned to work. On her way back home at about four o'clock in the afternoon, a friend met her in the street and stopped her. Friend was crying and told her the Gestapo had been there and arrested her parents. Helene strongly suspected Estonia of having had a part in her parents' arrest. And then she suddenly remembered the ammunition that she had left there in the morning. This was now an apartment that was going to be searched. She knew she had to retrieve it. And late at night, she came back. She's halfway up the stairs. When this Estournier comes out into the hall, he gives a uh, cry of surprise. And then he recovers. He, he shouts at her, what are you doing here this time of night? You're not allowed to enter the apartment. The door's been sealed by the Gestapo. She comes down the stairs, pulls out her gun, and orders him back into the shop. And turning to him, she says, you're going to walk upstairs in front of me and open that sealed door with your own hands. And don't forget that your life is in my hands. But he had no idea that she was a daughter there. No, what, no, she did still live in that flat. It's just that she was out during the day, officially working as a nanny in somebody's house. A nanny with a gun. Well, that was the first he'd seen of it. She retrieves the ammunition and begins a frantic race to save her parents' life because they were being held temporarily in Mechelen, in Malin, a transit camp. And she convinced somebody in the Gestapo office that uh, this man would make a good informer and was eventually given permission to bring him back from the camp. But the catch was that she was told by this Nazi, you're obviously not going to need both of them. He can do the job well enough on his own. And Helene, knowing that her father would never abandon her mother in a Nazi camp, had to abandon the idea and her parents. She was powerless and unable to save them. And on the 20th of April, 1943, they were deported to Auschwitz, where they were murdered in the gas chambers, murdered by the Nazis together with six million other victims. Incredibly enough, she received a postcard from her father in Auschwitz in ways that are unknown to this day. And this card is on display at the museum. Back in Gestapo headquarters a month later, she was filing some documents when her eye caught Estournier on a letter addressed to the chief of the Gestapo that had been written in which he said it was deemed his duty 
to report the family of Jews who were hiding on the first floor of the house in which he lived, Mr. and Mrs. Moskowitz and their daughter, Helen. Wow. And the underground decided that Estournier would be allowed to live because it might create too much suspicion otherwise, but at a heavy price. At irregular intervals, France, Jean and Hélène took turns phoning him in the middle of the night to remind him that his day of reckoning was near, ensuring that he lived in a constant state of fear until he died of a heart attack just after liberation. Wow. How did she manage to carry this off? I mean, listen, these things are always difficult to explain. She was a very quick thinker in tight situations. She was determined. She was driven. And, you know, she experienced multiple miracles. I mean, some of the stories are almost too crazy to believe, but we have documentation. There was one day where she was called into Muller's office because his secretary had taken ill. And she was given a list of 75 Belgian Jews, most of them well-to-do businessmen or professionals who'd remained in Brussels, who were to be arrested. He needed her to translate the arrest notice into French and pass it on to the police with all the addresses. So obviously she wrote down a copy of every name and address and her cell met that evening to contact everybody on that list and warn them. Although little did she guess what a thankless job she had undertaken. You know, it's nearly impossible to persuade someone over the phone who doesn't know you uh, who's a you know a strange voice that uh, they are about to be arrested by the Gestapo. Yet, when the Gestapo actually went to make their arrests, they returned with a report that all but seven people had been away, and therefore, you know, thankfully, most of the people had headed off. You know, listened to her warnings. And they still didn't suspect her. Well, obviously, people who were prominent Jews lived a tightrope existence. On the one hand, they knew that they still had a function that could be useful to the Nazis, which is why they were still in place, but they knew that any day it could change, and um, some of them obviously had the money, and many had contacts, so the fact that they had disappeared was unusual, but not traceable. Then, in the summer of 1943, Helene almost lost her life. France had summoned her and showed her a small case containing weapons and ammunition packed in straw, which she was to deliver to the Gare du Midi in downtown Brussels. In the station, she was to go to the waiting room and look for a Wehrmacht soldier sitting on a bench who would have an identical case. She was to sit next to him and put her case beside his. He would take hers and she would take his. France locked the case and gave Helene the key to wear, but it was on a long string hanging down deep in the front of her blouse, and she set off on foot. But it, the heat was oppressive, and the case was very heavy, um, and it was about an hour's walk, so she hopped on a tram. Ten minutes in, tram car came to a sudden halt, a soldier stuck his head inside and shouted, Alla Aussteigen. She is seized with panic 
And, you know, it's almost a certainty that she is never going to survive this. But nevertheless, as she descends from the car, she's calm. The passengers line up on the pavement, waiting to be checked one by one by a corporal on duty, who's looking for Jews, for people without identity papers. And she decided there and then that if she were actually forced to open the case, she would grab a hand grenade from the case, throw it at the soldier and run. Obviously, she's risking being shot as she escaped, but she preferred that to to torture and a slow death. You know, these are the type of decisions that people have to make and on the spot. So the corporal checks her identity card and glancing at the case, he says, Aufmachen. She pretends not to understand German. He repeats the, um, you know, the instruction. She plays dumb and she replies in French, comprends pas. But behind her, the other passengers are becoming impatient and they're pointing to the suitcase. So he eventually says in French, ouvrir. And, you know, as if seeing the light, she says, oh, open the case. Yeah, let me get the key. And she takes out her purse and kneels down and empties all the contents one by one onto the pavement, putting each piece back uh, with sort of exaggerated care as if, you know, the key's here, I'm just looking for it. And obviously, there are now various trams that are stuck behind theirs, and the queue is growing. And finally, you know, an officer comes over to the corporal and says, you know, what's going on? So the corporal salutes and he says, you know, this woman can't find the key to her case. And with a flick of his hand, the officer dismisses her. With the corporal still watching closely, you know, she would never forget the suspicion and disbelief in his eyes and the brush she had just had with death. Without a superior officer present, she would never have lived to tell the tale and he would never have let her off, but he had to obey orders. Crazy story. Was she ever suspected of being Jewish throughout this? She was, and it was actually very unusual because she looked the picture of a German non-Jew. But there is a truism that war brings out the best in some people and the worst in others. And there was a Jew by the name of Jacques, who was a uh, six-foot-tall brute who'd worked as a as a porter and as a bouncer before the war. In 1943, he and his family were picked up by the Gestapo. And to save his own skin, he volunteered to turn informer on his fellow Jews, promising to pick up every Jew in town. Uh, The Gestapo freed him on that condition, although his wife and children were shipped away to a death camp. And he possessed an uncanny ability to spot a Jew at a glance. And he rarely made a mistake. He begins to roam the streets of Brussels with a cruising Gestapo car. And when he spotted a Jew, he would grab them and hold on to them until the Gestapo hauled the individual away. And obviously, he became, as a result, a frequent visitor to the Gestapo office. One morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, she is waiting on the ground floor for the lift to take her to the eighth floor. And this Jacques approached, his eyes fixed on her. He stops in front of her and says in his Yiddish accented French, you are Jewish, come with me. Thinking on her feet, she, she reacts by pretending not to know him and she asks, and who are you? He ignores the question and repeats, you are Jewish. 
she recovers her composure sufficiently to laugh out loud in his face and says, you out of your mind? And as she speaks, she sees Schwenker, Muller's assistant, coming towards the elevator. So she raises her voice and speaking in German so that Schwenker would hear, says, how dare you insult me, you filthy Jew? What right do you have to be here anyway? And once Schwenker was in earshot, she addresses him and says, Herr Schwenker, this verdumpter Jew has insulted me. I demand that he be arrested immediately. But as if he had heard nothing, Jacques turns to Schwenker and simply repeats, she is Jewish. Now, Schwenker waved him away, but it took a while until, you know, her panic subsided. And she couldn't understand how he possessed the ability to guess that she was Jewish. She was, you know, ash blonde and had always passed for a non-Jew, spoke German fluently. And when she was alone with Franz later, she told him about this encounter. He listened and said, we will have to get rid of that individual and the sooner the better. Because, you know, he's going to arouse suspicion about you to others in the Gestapo, and that could be fatal to both of us. So a few days later, they get hold of a car, and they park around the corner from Jacques' house. It was dark by the time he appeared, and when he reaches his building, Franz took out his gun with a silencer. Jacques turns his back to the street because he's got to put his key into the lock and the car passed him by and breaks there. Franz, you know, jumps out of the car and fires six bullets into the man's back within a few seconds and jumps back into the car and they drive off. And, you know, they all congratulate themselves for having gotten rid of this informer. But unfortunately, the devil favours his own. And they learned that he wasn't dead. He was taken to a hospital, operated on, and by some twist of fate, every bullet missed the vital organs and all were successfully extracted. And after six weeks in hospital, Jacques was back on the street, still wearing the same old beige raincoat, this time with several bullet holes in it, uh, which was a decoration that he was now very proud of. He was, however, less self-assured and was therefore seen less and less. And a little before D-Day in 1944, he disappeared altogether, probably eliminated by the Gestapo or shipped off to die in a concentration camp. And no one ever heard of him again. There's so many miraculous. It's, it's almost like she had nine lives. Yes. There must have been times that she wasn't able to carry out her plans. I mean, with there. I'm sure that it's true, but what she spoke of were the heartbreaks that almost destroyed her. The Jews that she saw being brought into Gestapo headquarters, whom she knew she couldn't save. In particular, one Jewish woman um, whom Müller brought into Helene's office to try and discover where this woman's husband was hiding. The woman refused to speak. And as she was led away towards the cellars, Helene knew that somebody would pay the ultimate price, either the woman herself as she was being tortured or her husband if she revealed his location. And these tragedies absolutely haunted her. 
Now, to make the Nazis' job easier, in 1943, a notice was posted on the streets of Brussels proclaiming a reward of 40 Belgian francs to be paid to any citizen whose information resulted in the arrest of a Jew. And any letters were to be addressed to the Brussels Gestapo on the eighth floor of Avenue Louise. The informers had to collect their reward in person and soon began calling to the Gestapo office to collect their 40 francs. Since uh, France and Hélène were the only fluent French and German-speaking personnel in that Gestapo section, they were assigned the unpleasant task of paying informers. But the one thing it did enable them to do was to get these informers' names and addresses, uh, which she put on a list which she passed on to the resistance for, for the future. Although one repulsive individual who reported to the office on six different occasions each time to collect his 40 pieces of silver, in response, the underground gave him special treatment. Two men called at his home and slit his throat as a warning to others. Who was the underground? Listen, she was part of a cell. Generally, the resistance in any of the occupied countries was not limited to one resistance movement. And sometimes they, you know, the different factions didn't get on with one another, the communists and the and they nationalists. Were, they were generally Jewish. No, 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 no. By no means. They, they were generally non-Jewish members of you know, Belgian nationals who wanted to um, commit acts of sabotage um, and anything that would slow down the, the, the German war machine. But in consequence, they were also able and often willing to help a Jew who, who turned to them, or people like uh, Ehrman, for instance, who had been shot down um, and needed shelter, needed then to be somehow spirited out the country, all of which was done at, at tremendous risk. But the vast majority of them were non-Jewish. It's just that she had an in and was able to plead the case of Jews from time to time. Now, there's so many events in her life of self-sacrifice and danger, you know, it was never far away in her life. But one particular one uh, occurred in towards the very end of 1943. Schwenker was not only an ambitious Nazi, he was an envious one. And he wanted to earn promotion to uh, Lieutenant Colonel to be placed on an equal footing with his boss, Müller, whose post he actually wanted to take over. And he revealed to an officer in a different section that he didn't like or trust this Lieutenant Franz Bochler. He was too evasive. He was too much of a playboy. And he meant to have him closely watched. And he then installed a secretary in his office to keep him informed about how this France spent his time, which obviously meant that France and Helen were now being spied upon. So they realised that the only way around it was to get rid of him. And a group of girls were sent to spy out a suitable location where this killing could take place in or near the Forêt des Soignes, where Schwenker's mistress lived. And they were able to confirm 
that he left his mistress's house every morning just before eight o'clock and took a shortcut along a trail. Now, it was agreed that they couldn't use a gun to get rid of him because this would result in the shooting of hostages. The execution would have to be uh, done by uh, a dagger or a knife, and they would have to remove his wallet and uh, his watch to make it look as if it was a, a mugging of a common criminal, and therefore his papers and his gun were not to be touched. But... The executioner had to be somebody who was well known to Schwenker. Why otherwise would he stop and, uh, you know, allow himself to be engaged in conversation? And since he didn't speak any French, it couldn't be a stranger. He needed, on the other hand, to be caught by surprise. All of which pointed to Hélène as being the perfect and perhaps only candidate to carry out this assassination. So they looked through this trail and found a convenient site, a, a tree stump, where she was to sit and sort of nurse an imaginary sprained ankle. And when he passed by, he would sort of notice her. She would exaggerate her predicament and ask if he could help her up. And um, when he bent over, she was to kill him. And this is exactly what happened. And as he bent down, she grabbed a dagger from her handbag and thrust the knife into his stomach. He screamed in pain and tried to stand up. So she yanked the knife out and stabbed him repeatedly, blindly, saying to herself, this is for all the Jews that you've murdered. And she saw and she felt blood everywhere, on her clothes, on her hands, on her face. And after she killed him in a, in a panic, she, she suddenly couldn't remember where Franz's car was located. Thankfully, she managed to locate the path soon afterwards. She changed her clothes in the car, and these were eventually burnt. And Franz and her were now able to resume their underground activities unhindered un until the end, until, you know, the liberation in, in August, September 44. Incredible. It's a teenage girl. Yep. And untrained. It's not as if she'd, you know, gone through an intense course of underground abilities to uh, to survive and to think, etc. Now, towards the very end, literally the very end, having fought this enemy in secret for the better part, really, of four years, although two years in the Gestapo, she, along with many Belgian nationals, spent the last few weeks in patience, waiting for the Allied breakthrough. And Jean advised her to avoid the Gestapo building. On the 31st of August, she ran into a resistance friend who told her that the Gestapo had now decamped, that they had abandoned their building. And she was very curious. She went over and the building was deserted. The, the hall, usually, you know, alive with Gestapo men, was empty. The downstairs offices, the doors were wide open. And on the table in the middle of the main room, lying almost conspicuously open, was a thick file. She, she comes up to the table and she scans several pages and she realizes that she is looking at a comprehensive list of names and addresses of informers and traitors to the Gestapo. She, you know, impulsively almost grabs this file and she runs out. And from that list of informers, she picked out the list of 25 that she remembered personally as the worst offenders. She phones Jean 
and lets him know that she intends spending the next day visiting these people before they have a chance to, you know, flee or to masquerade as a loyal citizen. And she asked him to uh, put together a small group of men. And uh, sort of six or seven strong, they go from flat to flat, catching these Nazi collaborators off guard. And a number of them recognised Helene as the Gestapo clerk who'd paid them off. And they get them to a place where, you know, these people are groveling in the dirt, terrified. And she leaves the guys to deal with them more thoroughly. And as soon as they finished with the traitor personally, they burst into his apartment and destroyed everything they could. Uh, you know, whole pieces of, of furniture flying out the windows and crashing on the pavement. And then she takes the main part of the file and she delivers it to the British. She is received by a Captain Tompkin, a British intelligence officer who spoke fluent French. And she puts this, you know, this big file onto his desk and says simply, pour vous, it's for you. He looks at the list and asked her where she got it and then asks her her name. And she says, uh, my name is Olga. Uh, I mean, André. Um, no, uh, sorry, my name is Helen Moskowitz. And he's, you know, a little bit um, taken aback at somebody who can't remember her own name. And she explains that she had been living under a false identity um, and saving people's lives. So he says to her, are you quite sure it was the Gestapo building? Positive. You see, monsieur, I worked for the resistance and I happened to be passing by the building and noticed it was empty. I walked in and I found this on the table. OK, take me there and show me. And he brings her to a jeep. They drive to Avenue Louise. She jumps out and, you know, she's very proud. She's going to show them the way in. And the sergeant who was with them grabs her arm and keeps her back in the street while they check the entrance with a mine detector. To her absolute astonishment, they discover a mine under the floor in the hall just behind the front door, which means that anyone walking in would be blown up together with most of the building. But I walked in here and out of here just over a week ago after the Gestapo left. How do you explain that? She asked them. The captain had no real explanation, but suggested that perhaps her small foot might have missed the mine by a fraction of an inch each time she walked by on the way in and out, which is, you know, nothing less than a another miraculous escape. Wow. When God wants you to stay alive, yep. you stay alive. Yep. So that's how the war ended for the war, yes, but not her adventures. She'd been wary of France in the last few months of the war, in 1944. And as the war ended, he disappeared. But he gave Hélène a box of his personal possessions, a locked box, and he said, if I'm not back in six months, just, you know, throw it away, throw it in the river. In 1945, Jean mentioned France and said, you know, if he's not turned up by now, he's probably not alive anymore. He's might have been caught, tortured, shot, who knows? And suddenly she remembers Frances' box in her apartment, which had been forgotten in the excitement of the liberation. 
She tells Jean about it. He is not prepared to let it be thrown away. He forces the lid open and there are no personal possessions, no heirlooms inside, documents only. He glances through them quickly and realises that these are title deeds in France's real name for three properties in Paris. Two are apartment buildings and one is a 20-room hotel which is worth millions. And he says to her, where the hell did he get that much money? He always complained that he was so short of cash. So she brings in British intelligence and a major comes around to her flat. And the following conversation transpires. You were a registered agent in the resistance. Why did you work part-time as a governess? Quite simple, Major. I had to survive. I had no money of my own. What do you mean? Did France not pay you a monthly stipend and provide you with ration cards and food stamps? At which point she she laughs and says, France, pay me? What a joke. I never saw a cent from him. Any time I asked him for financial help, he complained of being short of cash himself and said he didn't get any money from London. I never received a single ration card, even a food stamp from him. So the major comes back to her and says, I checked with London. I can assure you that France received sufficient funds for us to ensure payment of your monthly stipend in full. We supplied him over the years with ration cards, stamps for distributions wherever he needed. And clearly he'd sold these all on the black market. And the news that she had been a registered agent in the prey of British intelligence absolutely stunned her. But he'd found it more profitable to keep her in the dark and pocketed her pay. Ten days later, France was arrested in Paris. And she met him one last time, being left with many questions about this person who she'd met as a 17-year-old. He was a, you know, a witty, sophisticated, cheerful young lieutenant of 25, a man with whom she'd plotted and connived against the Nazis for years, yet who had swindled her of her pay. And given his tendency, she was eternally grateful that he hadn't betrayed her. I mean, he would have made money in the process, and given his murky dealings in the war, she could only be relieved that for some reason he'd kept with her till the end. Now, while he was in jail pending his trial, this major, Major Harris, made her a surprising officer. Would she continue working as an agent for British intelligence to unearth war criminals, Gestapo officers, SS officers, who were known to be at large in, in occupied Germany? She would have officer status. She would receive a salary, a car, her own driver. But she would have to spend most of her time in Germany. And since this was now a country that she had come to loathe, unsurprisingly, she turned down the office, the, the, the offer. Now, the major, you know, he was disappointed. He expressed his regret, but said he hoped that she would still testify at Frank's trial. And if she did, he promised her back pay all the way to 1942. She still refused. She said, I'm going to America. I'm leaving. 
and in the end he had to be satisfied with a written affidavit in lieu of verbal testimony at the trial. And the only memento of all her time in service was a personally signed letter from Field Marshal Montgomery with a citation for bravery. Although many years later, she never regretted the decision to follow, you know, the dictates of her heart. Well, could it be that this whole time Frank was just sort of employed her out of greed? It was never an old... You know, a better motive? Well, he did endanger himself and did save lives. So there was more than greed. Obviously, a complex personality, a complex character. Yeah, who knows? So where did she end up after this? She moved to Argentina initially and then to North America. She had two sons. And when she passed away, she also had by then two granddaughters. But, you know, it has to be said, she used up more lives than a cat, as you mentioned, during her war years. She was a a real-life heroine, and she had an unforgettable story. Exceptional bravery and survival in the face of what can only be called staggering odds. We are aware, and we've covered some of these people in podcasts, people who chose routes which would endanger their lives every time they went on a mission, you know, with uh, years of hidden identity. But in her case, it was every day walking into the lion's den, having to show no emotion. It's almost meaningless trying to picture what it would have been like to be in her shoes over those two years in the way that she chose to. That's an almost unbelievable story. I mean, was there evidence backing a lot of cases? Yes, there's photographic evidence. And and she gave an interview two months before she died. Although, interestingly, uh, she said, you know, she felt that the world had not learned the lessons of World War II and that the Allies had not done anywhere near enough to track down Nazis. She also said that she'd do it again if history were to repeat itself. Wow. Does she ever explain why she did it, how she had the courage? She said she felt she could carry it off, and therefore she should try. Simple. Very simple as that, yeah. And it's now 25 years, almost to the day, since she passed away on the 24th of Sivan in 1998. Wow, Shabir's Khosfahana Sharma. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Hash. What a very moving and incredible story of heroism. Yes. Yeah, I guess we'll see you next week for part two. Next week, we will be dealing with one of the villains of World War II who contributed to the deaths of many Jews, whom you and I would say almost none of our readers, or listeners rather, have ever heard of. Wow, it's quite the opposite theme. Yes. Thank you very much. Please send all questions, all feedback or constructive criticism to podcasts at jle.org.uk Make sure you follow and subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. Thank you. <laughs>